But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dear Lord, we open up your word this evening, praying that you speak to each and every heart, that each and every person in this room leaves a little bit wiser, a little bit closer to you, Lord, a little bit more in love with you. So we thank you for your power, thank you for your love, and pray that you would bless this evening. In Jesus' name we all said, amen. So over the weekend on my snow day, I aimed to do nothing, absolutely nothing. I slept 13 hours. Didn't think that was possible for a 27-year-old man, but I did. And then I watched, anyone ever see the old BBC version of Chronicles of Narnia? Anyone? They were the best. They were really strange and really creepy. And actually, when I was watching it, there's the one werewolf scene where there's the werewolf and the witch, and they try to revive the white witch in uh, Prince Caspian. And it freaked me out as a little child. And I got freaked out watching it. I'm 27 years old. Scary. I actually think... The movies that are older that had the costumes and makeup are more scary than the digital effects, but that's what I think. Anyway, so I watched Prince Caspian, which is a three-hour long thing, and I watched The Silver Chair, which is like, like another three hours. It was awesome. I didn't do anything. So in thinking about the Narnia movies, especially, you know, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, think about that plot twist, how there's these four children, Peter, Susan, Lucy, and Edmund, who travel into this distant country by going in through this wardrobe. And as they do, they find out there's a prophecy about them that they, when they sit on the throne, they have the power to dispel the power of the white witch. And in watching that as a little kid, I think what was so exciting and what was so uh, compelling, why that's one of the best written novels of our time, is because there's something in that that makes you feel like that could have been you. That they're not special children in that they had special superpowers, but they just stumbled upon a calling that was already there for them. They stumbled upon their destiny. It wasn't because they were cool. It wasn't because they, they were strong. It wasn't because they were smart. It was just by the virtue of there was a prophecy about them that they had to fulfill. There was a calling in place, and they had been the chosen people who were going to be able to save this nation from a curse. And when I think about that, I think about how, if you think about it, this is kind of like what our story is. We're living, and if you read the Bible, the Bible sometimes doesn't make sense because it's a story. And if you read it out of context, the reason why we're so heavily emphasizing the context is because you're coming up at different parts of the story. People talk about the Old Testament and does it apply to today and does it not and does it contradict each other. It just depends on what point of the story are you picking up on. And of course, a lot of the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus doesn't apply to us because it's written to a different people. And when you understand in the context of the giant story, what you realize is that right here in 1 Peter, Peter is writing to a people who were scattered abroad once again. I want to remind you. He's writing to people who are discouraged, people like, that feel like God has neglected them, forgotten them. And he wants to remind them that, no, you are actually a selected and chosen generation. You're chosen, handpicked by God. 
And when he writes that to these uh, people that were scattered abroad, Christians that were dispersed throughout different parts of Asia Minor, he was actually writing to you and me too. And by writing to us, we can take this passage and apply it directly to our lives, that we too are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, his own holy nation, his own special people. And I think there's something about being chosen and being selected that makes you feel special. I mean, I don't know about you, but you guys probably have gone to a number of sweet 16s, and you're always hoping that you're the person who gets the candle. I've never been selected as the guy who gets a candle, but everyone I go to, still, being a 27-year-old man, I still hope that one of you chooses me to light a candle. <laughs> I don't know why. It's like the weirdest thing. I, like, I should be over it, but I'm not. That is not me dropping a hint. That's just me being realistic. But you know, you know what I mean. And if you're my age, it'd be the same thing with weddings. You hope that you're chosen to be in the wedding party. And, and you're not just someone who, who attends the wedding, but you're actually one of the people that the bride or the groom counts as someone really valuable, really special, near and dear to their heart. And I guess your modern context is sweet 16s. But we actually are chosen for a glorious purpose that God has for us. Now, you might be thinking, if we are all chosen, doesn't that make my individual calling insignificant? If everybody's chosen, if everybody's picked, doesn't that mean that I'm not anyone chosen in particular? I'm not anyone special. So it kind of loses its weight. If I said all of you people here are chosen, all of you are special, all of you are God's elect, it may make, uh, it may make some of you feel like you're not anyone special in particular. Well, I would say in response to that, that this is a result of our individualistic mentality that has kind of plagued our society. The reason why you think like that is because you think like an individual. In Japan, they don't think as individuals. They think as, in terms of their family and things of, in terms of their country, as a completely different mentality in terms of their community. But think about this. In order to really understand what this means to be a chosen generation, we have to think about the first chosen generation, the first chosen nation, the people of Israel, the Jewish people. Think about the benefits that they received. Being called out of Egypt into the promised land. And all the while, seeing God perform miracles. Seeing the ten plagues. Imagine what it was like to see water right in front of you turn into blood because of the power of God. For God to withhold daylight from an entire part of the city. For God to do miracles like passing over the houses that had the blood on the doorposts and slain the firstborn. To see God provide manna throughout the wilderness. See, all of the nation was chosen. All of them were drawn out. But that doesn't mean that they didn't reap the special benefits of being a chosen people. And actually, being part of this membership, this class, is exciting in that there are some benefits that you only receive as a class that you couldn't receive as an individual. And you guys exercise that same line of thinking when you go to concerts and you want VIP seating. The fact that there's other people choosing VIP seating doesn't change the fact that you want to be a part of that membership as well. The fact that 
other people get first class seats on an airplane doesn't change the fact that you want to be in first class as well because you see the benefits that other people receive and you want to join in on those benefits too now in this kind of way that's how we are to understand being a chosen generation doesn't eliminate the significance of you as an individual because each and every calling that you have is different though you're all equally called or chosen for those that are chosen which is another point because not everyone is chosen Jesus said that many are called but few are chosen thinking about that though the ones that are chosen are chosen individually differently but you're chosen as a group for a purpose so what I mean by that is each and every one of you has a specific calling that's different than one another but you're all called as a body of Jesus Christ to proclaim the praises of God so you have a corporate calling and you have an individual calling and it's important for us to recognize both some of you think only terms as an individual in other words you're always thinking in terms of what is God calling me to do what am I meant to be what kind of job am I supposed to take up who am I supposed to marry you're thinking of yourself all the time which isn't in itself bad but if you stay in the individual calling only you miss out on the calling to each other what God's calling the entire church the body of Christ to do and listen if you're only called as an individual you'll never be able to impact a community because you need a community to influence a community we need each other to do things that only a group can do now on the flip side if you're only recognizing your calling as a membership as a community as a group and don't recognize your individual calling then you can feel lost in translation you might feel like God doesn't have a specific calling on your life and you kind of watch everybody else's calling wow God's really using that person God's really using that person in my class God's using those youth leaders God's using pastor Lloyd but you don't look at yourself as a person that God individually is calling for a very special and specific purpose and to this Peter writes you are a chosen generation we are to be blessed corporately and called individually blessed corporately and called individually now with being a chosen nation here's another question and maybe you've never thought about this before so pay attention look up here have you ever thought how do we know that we can for sure claim certain promises of the Bible you look at Jeremiah 29 11 and you guys know the verse for I know the thoughts I think towards you thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope who did Jesus write that to the Jewish people who are going into captivity now I'm half Jewish so that might apply to me but for those of you that aren't Jewish how do you know that you can claim that as your promise and if you can't claim that as your promise how do you know that you can claim any promise of the Bible especially the ones that seem to apply to Jews or do you only have to apply the promises to yourself that seem to be in the in the New Testament non-Jewish promises how do I know that I am a chosen generation how do I know that I'm a royal priesthood that I'm one of these people that are called and I can apply these these promises to my life in other words how do you know that you're not taking someone else's throne at care Paravel how do you know that there aren't four other 
you know, two sons of Adam, two daughters of Eve that are supposed to take the rightful place in the throne, and you just took their calling by accident. How do you know that you're one of those included that's to be chosen? Well, the key is in Christ and exemplified in our priesthood. Maybe you don't think about that, that we are a royal priesthood. What in the world does that even mean? Well, this is where some Bible knowledge actually helps you out. So we have to understand, first of all, what was the Levitical priesthood all about? And what was that for? Well, the tribe of Levi, this guy named Levi, son of Jacob, and then he came, and then he had his descendants and whatever. And those descendants were set apart not to inherit their own land, but to inherit the Lord. And they were to be set apart as priests. So God set this apart, and you couldn't be a priest unless you were a Levite. So that was really important. So thinking about that, how many of you guys are Levites? How many of you are descendants from Aaron? How many of you are descendants from that line, from Levi? I am. That's actually where Khan comes from. It's Cohen, and it goes back, and it's, I'm a descendant of Aaron, so I can be a Levite. Can you be a Levite? How do you know that you can be a priest? Well, here's the thing. Actually, if you think about it, Jesus did not come down that Levitical tribe, yet he is our great high priest. How in the world is Jesus our great high priest, according to the Bible, if the only people that could be priests were the Levites? Well, you come back all the way in the Old Testament, there's this mysterious character named Melchizedek. Guys, if you don't know who that is, that is actually the criteria by which I determine whether or not a guy can date one of our girls. So you need to know who Melchizedek is. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> you may object to it, but it's true. That's one of the criteria. So Melchizedek, mysterious character in the Bible. He approaches Abraham, and Abraham tithes to Melchizedek. Now, this requires a lot of Jewish background that you may not be familiar with. But in order to receive a tithe, that means that Melchizedek had to be greater than Abraham. Out of Abraham's line came the Levites. Out of Abraham's line came the Levitical priesthood. But there seemed to be one greater. In other words, why would you tithe to someone who is lesser than you? Of course, this mysterious character, some believe that he might be a pre-incarnate Jesus. Some people might believe that he's just some guy that we don't really know who he is. We don't have any information on him. But this mysterious guy, Melchizedek, was a priest and received a tithe from Abraham and therefore was greater than Abraham. And so the Bible says that Jesus is a priest by the order of Melchizedek. So since Jesus is out of the line of Melchizedek, and according to his order, what we need to realize is, in order for us to be priests, we need to be from the line of Jesus. We need to be in Christ. So, when you, if you're a Christian here today, when you said, Lord, I surrender my life to you, you're my Lord and my Savior, the Bible says that you died and your life is hidden in Christ. Now, follow the logic. If you have died and now your life is the same life as Christ's life, You've been united with Christ. What he inherits is what you inherit. And if he is a priest, you are a priest. Doesn't mean you are Jesus, obviously, but it means that you inherit by being in him, his blessings, his promises. And this is where the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all the promises of God in him, in Jesus, are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. So, I know that might sound a little 
confusing, but it's really important because by Jesus, by his sacrifice and by what he did on the cross, he unlocked the ability for us to become priests with Jesus. Now, what does a priest do? A priest intercedes on behalf of the people, reaches those lost people, and offers sacrifices. Not just anyone could be a priest. They were a separate and holy people that had the special privilege of approaching God on behalf of everybody else. In other words, they were the middleman. They were the one that intercedes on behalf of the people to God. Now, what's really cool about that is that is exactly what we have been called to do. That we have inherited God. We don't have a land. We don't have a nation. Just like the Jewish people have been dispersed throughout history. And it's only been in the past century that they've been able to return to Israel. They've always been nomads. And we too are pilgrims. We don't have a country except the one that's for us in heaven. And just like the Levites didn't have their own land, but inherited God as their inheritance, we too inherit God as our Father because of what he has done for us. So, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. We can claim the promises of God, and we can intercede on behalf of the people to God. And it also says that we are a holy nation. Now, holy, as you know, is being set apart. Set apart as a community. So just as if you look in the Bible, you look at what the people of Israel got to inherit, you can not replace Israel, but join in Israel with the promises of God and realize that we too are to be called out to be separate from the world and to be, to be joined together to God. Now, what does this mean for us? I think, well, first of all, I think this should mean that when we gather as a community, we should do things that a holy community should do. In other words, when you're gathering with your friends that are Christians, it should not be the case that conversation about God in the Bible is awkward. But doesn't that happen? You're out hanging out with your friends, you're playing basketball, or you're, you're playing Super Smash Brothers. You're at the mall. You're flirting. I don't know what you're doing at the mall. Shouldn't be flirting. You're doing stuff, and then someone says, Hey, man, what you been reading in the Bible? And everyone just stops, like, oh, man. Here comes the judgment. The holier than thou. The guy that thinks he walks on water. And for whatever reason, we get defensive. Like we have to like think, well, oh, well, I read something last week. And you have to like be prepared. The only reason why I started reading the Bible every single week is because I knew on Fridays, Joey Rosick would ask me what I read in the Bible. So I started reading like before I got to impact, like flipping my Bible and What's really funny is I would always, since it was in the middle of the Bible, I would always read that psalm that says, The Lord said to my Lord, stay at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. You are priest in forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's like in the center of the Bible. So I'd always just flip there, and that was the psalm I read every night. So I was like, yeah, I'm still in Psalms. You know, it's like, so when you use that excuse on me, I know, because I was there. But why should biblical conversation be awkward? If anything, it should be the most life-giving thing we have to share with one another. When Jesus said, my blood is true drink and his body is true food, what he's saying is not like you should all be cannibals. What he's saying though is that his word is life. And when you chew on the words of God and when you hold it near dear to your heart, you know that it impacts other people. Now, 
you may not know that because you have each other every day. But when you go off to college, like I was, I talk to kids that go off to college all the time. And when I do, people that are in impact, they lose that community aspect. They don't have Christians around them every single day, every single week. And so they become discouraged. And when you take an hour of your time, when you take 10 minutes of your time to call someone up and say, hey man, let me encourage you with this. It's like they were, they were a starving person in the middle of the desert and you just gave them the best meal possible. It's like they're a person who hasn't drank water in days and you finally gave them a sip. It's not embarrassing. It's not something you should be ashamed of. It's something exciting that you get to present with other people. However, could it be that the reason why it's awkward is because you become used to it? It's like the people that had manna from heaven every single day. And after a while, it's like, oh, all we have is this manna. It'd be nice to have some meat once in a while. And because you haven't realized that this is the bread from heaven, that man should not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If you really realize what this is in front of you, you wouldn't treat it as something that you're going to judge other people with, something that's just going to make you feel guilty inside, but something exciting and something you can share with others and taste and see that the Lord is good. So, a biblical community, a Christian community, a holy nation should be living in such a way that when we share in the life-giving message of Jesus Christ, wherever we gather, wherever we go, impact light, wherever we're gathering, we're just sharing the love of Christ. When we do that, we should be living in such a way that causes the community around us, the world, to ask questions. I was looking over my journals, and uh, I do that from time to time because I keep a journal every single day. And I looked at one of my unsafe friends. You know, I had an entry about him, and I wrote in there that he asked, he was, I was talking to him about Jesus or whatever, and he said, there are some days that I just, I feel sad and I don't know why. And I was like, wow, just this guy in this, in this moment of honesty shared that with me. And imagine if I was just like, yeah, that stinks, man. Sorry. But I can actually offer him hope. And you should be living in such a way that not like you always have to be putting on this face like, I'm happy, everything's fine. But even when things are bad, you can still rejoice. And that is what makes the world wonder. It's when people in your family are suffering through cancer and you still have a hope that's unshakable. Doesn't mean that you don't cry. Doesn't mean that you're not moved inside. But you're not easily cast down. You're not utterly destroyed. And that's what Paul said. So people could look at your life and say, there is something that you have that I don't have, and I want to know what that is. Living your life in such a way that you're set apart from the world, even in your conduct. So, we're chosen, we're royal, we're holy, his own special people. For what? For a purpose. Look at verse 9 again. It says, That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have a message to proclaim and a person to praise. You're chosen for a purpose. You're not, just, you're not chosen just because. You aren't selected just because you're cool or you're pretty or beautiful or you're handsome or you're a nice guy and I'm going to choose you because I feel bad for you. But you have been chosen for a specific 
purpose because you have a message to proclaim and a person to praise. You see, evangelism is not about reading a script. It's not about approaching your friends and saying, uh, hey man, I just, uh, I know this is kind of awkward, but like I believe this thing and I'm supposed to tell you about it, so can I have a half hour of your time to tell you about the best relationship you're missing out on? That's not how evangelism is supposed to be. And listen, there's a time and a place for that. There's been many conversations I've had with friends over the years where I realized I never told them about Jesus. I never even showed them I was a Christian. And I'd have to sit down with these people and say, hey, listen, I know this is kind of strange and out of nowhere, but like I've neglected to tell you about the most important thing in my life. And I share with them. But that should be abnormal. That shouldn't be the regular circumstance. Instead, what it should be is us constantly retelling the story. The Bible is written in story format, and we should be telling the story of how Jesus came in and changed and shaped our lives. Proclaim the message, the praises of him who what? Called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I was once in darkness, but now there's light in my life, and I want to share that light with you. Which means that the way that we do evangelism should change. Because what you're going to find is, and if you took the killing the comfort zone class, you might have heard me say this before, but we need to change the way that we do evangelism because most of us think it's about having this awkward shift in conversation where people are talking about pizza and you're like, you know, this pizza is going to run out one day and we have the pizza that leads to eternal life. Do you want to hear about it? And it's just awkward. Or you're just like, doing something and people are talking about whatever they're talking about sports and you're like hey yeah sports you know who likes sports jesus come to church with me on friday <laughs> but here's the problem most of us don't know how to even get people interested in what we're saying some of you may not even be interested in what i'm saying but think about this when's the last time you talked to an unbeliever and they said, well, that's cool for you, but, you know, like, whatever makes you feel good, I don't really need God. I've never felt like I needed God. What do you do? How do you make that person interested in the things of God? Well, I would say this. Find out what they are interested in. Because every time a person tells you a story, that's a glimpse into what's really meaningful to them. Even when a person says, you wouldn't believe what happened to me today. I went to class, and as I went to class, the teacher just found, you know, everything wrong with my paper and wanted to pick on me throughout the entire class. It's just so embarrassing, whatever. When they tell you that, that is a glimpse into what they're interested in. They don't tell you boring stories. They tell you what's really personal. And they're telling you a little bit about themselves. What is it that they want? They want to be valued. They want to be valued by people in authority. When they tell you a story, even... Even stories that are successful. Man, you wouldn't believe what happened to me. I won the game last night. I scored all the goals and whatever. They're telling you a story, and they're telling you what's interesting to them. So what we need to do is find ways to take the gospel and intersect it into their story. If the gospel is God, man, Christ's response, it starts with creation. Then you have the fall. Then you have redemption and consummation. God, man, Christ response. That's the story of the gospel. The God created the world. Man sinned. Jesus came to save us. And all you have to do is confess your sins to him. And one day he's coming back for us. That's the gospel. Find out where they are in their story. If they're a person who's complaining about their teacher. 
had the worst day ever. Why? Why was it the worst day ever? It's because I got shut down. It's because I asked this girl out and she said no. What they're saying is they're giving you a peek into, your, into their soul. And they're saying, this is what's really meaningful to me. And you get to say, even if you obtained what you wanted, it would not be enough. Even if you got all of your dreams fulfilled, would that be enough to satisfy you? And when you ask those questions, they realize that what they're really looking for isn't going to satisfy them. In fact, Blaise Pascal was saying, he's a philosopher, a Christian guy, that oftentimes our biggest problem as humans is this. We don't know how to sit in our room quietly. Now, if you think about it, like if you were trying to finish the sentence, you'd be like, our biggest problem is sin. Our biggest problem is, he said, our biggest problem is we don't know how to sit in our room quietly. What he meant by that is this. If any of one of you just took an hour of your time and stayed in your room and didn't think about anything outside of the room, you just stayed in your room, sat in your chair, didn't have your phone, didn't have anything, it would drive you nuts. How do I know? One of, our, one of the forms of torture in our world today is solitary confinement. We don't know how to exist with just ourselves. And so this is what people do. They need distractions, distractions. What they're looking for is something to move them away from themselves. Not to find themselves, they wanna move away from themselves because they're afraid of the terror of being alone with nothing, no hope but yourself. But if your hope is in Christ, then you've found ultimate fulfillment. You don't need to distract yourself. Think about the way that people talk today. If only I could go on vacation. If only I could get to the weekend. They want to move themselves away from where they are now. Always trying to distract themselves with more things. That's why we're on social media all the time. That's why we're always hanging out. That's why we can't stand being alone at our house. We always need to constantly distract ourselves from the ultimate problem that there is something missing. And all these distractions are merely moving the problem one step further from realizing we are empty without God. There's a God-shaped vacuum in all of us. And without him, we are lost. We are in darkness and we need light. So if you want to learn how to do this, here are some example questions that might be helpful. Ready? Gospel aligning questions. A creation question would be this. Who are your heroes? Ask your friends, your unbelieving friends. Who are the people that you look up to? Who are your heroes in life? People that you aspire to be. A fall question might be this. What do you feel you lack? What do you feel you lack? A redemption question might be this. What do you think will make life better? In other words, what are you looking to save you from your current position? A consummation question would be this. What are your dreams? What are your dreams? So these questions I pulled from a book called Everyday Church by Tim Chester, just in case I didn't make those questions up, just so you know. But those questions might be helpful. And the next time that you're talking to someone, allow them to share their story so you can lead them to the end of the story that they were always meant to find, but never could because they're distracted with the wrong things. Now, listen, a lot of people think about us being a chosen generation. What makes us really special? 
you know, like every, every generation that's existed since Christ has believed that we're going to be the last generation. Jesus is going to come back, rapture the church, and that'll be it. Every generation, even the disciples, thought they were going to be raptured. They thought they were going to be taken away, and Jesus was coming back soon, like in their lifetime. So there's a part of us that feels like, how do we know, like, we're a chosen generation, sure. But how do we know that we're the last nation? How do we know that this is the last one before Christ returns? Well, think about this. In no other point in history, no other generation has seen Israel become a nation again. One of the last prophecies to be fulfilled before Jesus returns is that Israel comes back and becomes a nation. In fact, a lot of people in times past have just kind of spiritualized it, allegorized that prophecy, saying like, well, it can't mean like Israel is going to actually become a real nation again, because that's impossible. How would you even get all those people together? But because of the Holocaust and because of the United Nations, all these things have taken place so that Israel actually did return to the homeland. Whenever I tell people that I'm Jewish, people ask, well, isn't Jewish not even a ethnicity? It's a religion. Like, no, it's both. It's the only ethnicity that's both because the Jewish people have been kicked out of the land, dispersed, but they held on to their ethnicity even while being away from their country. So this should lead us to believe that we actually perhaps, unless the Lord tarries, will be the last generation. And if that's the case, check this out. Think of the amazing parallels that brings up. Last time that Jesus came back to the earth, in the times of the disciples, back in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what happened? Wasn't there a guy that was sent to pave the way for Jesus? A guy named John the Baptist, who came in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the hearts of people to turn them back. Actually, this is what the book of Luke says in chapter 1, verse 16, that John the Baptist will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So if it's the case that we're the last generation, then we have the same task, No. That we are the same people, that we are on the cusp of eternity. And we get to be this chosen generation that proclaims the praises of God, that he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, preparing the hearts of people around us. And who knows if we would see a revival. Imagine, imagine you're going down the streets of your school, like where your school is. There's a street and everybody's a Christian. You're walking down the hallway in your public school. Everybody's a Christian. And not just a nominal Christian, not just a person who says, I am a Christian. But people are praying in their classroom. You see people excited, sharing about Jesus. Teachers, everybody's coming to know Christ. And if you think that's ridiculous, it's happened before. Why couldn't it happen in our generation? Well, it just depends on whether or not we're willing. If you and I are willing to say, you know what, Lord, I want to be used. I want to see a miracle. I want to see you bring more lost people out of darkness into your marvelous light. Now, a couple things on darkness. I think darkness implies that you were once lost. John 12, 35 says, Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. For he who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. This is the words of Jesus saying that if you are lost— if you're in darkness, you are lost. You don't know where you're going. I think if you think about it, 
Man was created for infinite joy. You and I, we were created to experience infinite joy. But in order for us to obtain infinite joy, you must place your joy in an infinite God. All of us are looking for ultimate fulfillment. And when we say that, what we're saying is, I'm looking for something to fulfill me so that I never despair ever again. But you're only going to find that in something that's infinitely joyful itself. Oftentimes, we just forget and we settle for lesser treasures, thinking that this might be the thing that fulfills me. Now, I know probably none of you watch anime, but I'm going to make an anime reference just because. There's an anime called One Piece in which the main character, Luffy, wants to be the king of pirates and wants to search for the ultimate treasure, the One Piece. Now, probably none of you watch anime, but humor me because this is my moment. So, as Luffy is searching for the great treasure, the One Piece, the treasure that no one's been able to find, imagine, imagine, or fill in the blank in any movie that has to do with finding great treasure. Imagine, as he's searching for the One Piece, he gets distracted by lesser treasures like, well, but this is good enough. And then the series ends. How disappointed would you be? If you were, I know Cody's right there with me. You'd be so disappointed. Fill in the blank, Indiana Jones, any movie where someone is looking for something. Imagine someone's kidnapped in a movie and you're looking for your daughter. And you're like, well, you know what? We're just going to have another kid. <laughs> movie ends. Would that not be the most disappointing movie? But you realize that's what we do all the time. We know, we know deep down inside there is something missing and yet we settle all the time like, well, this is good enough for now. It's enough to distract you from searching for the infinite treasure that's only found in Jesus. Now, the additional problem is that the lesser treasures are, are actually taskmasters that demand your allegiance. Is that not true? That the lesser treasures you search for aren't just inert. They aren't inanimate objects. They actually are slave masters looking for you to obey their every command. Tim Chester, in that book that I talked about before, he says, Behind every presenting issue are lies and desires that enslave, together with an opportunity to proclaim truth that liberates. So here's the, here's the thing. You and I both know that it's, just, it's not just enough to have money, but money is a taskmaster. That's why Jesus said you can't serve both God and mammon. Mammon being money. Because you and I both know that somewhere, someway, there's a voice inside your head that says you need more. It's not enough. What you have is not good enough. People commit adultery. Like that shouldn't even be a thing. Like you should be content with one person. And you need more. What's wrong with you? But there's something in our head that says it's not enough. Slave masters, taskmasters that want us to obey because we have not found the infinite joy we were meant to find. The Ephesians, uh, Paul writes a letter to Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 12. It says, In those days you were living apart from Christ, you were excluded from citizen, citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, 
but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. We are no longer in darkness. We no longer have to worry about being lost because we have found Jesus. We have found hope and we have found the way, the truth, and life. Darkness also implies something else. It implies sin. John chapter 3 says, This is the condemnation. Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light because their, e their deeds were evil. Here's the other problem. The longer you stay lost, the more you learn to like the darkness. The longer you are in darkness, the more darkness asks for you to obey its every command, and the more you actually enjoy it. So that when the light comes in, you flee for fear that you will be exposed. R.C. Sproul is a theologian who says this, In our fallen condition, we feared more than anything else that a searchlight would be placed on our souls and that our sins would be made manifest to the world. You want to know if you're living in darkness? Do you have things in your life that you're afraid of people finding out? Are there things that nobody else knows that your greatest fear is that everyone would? You're afraid that people will see you for who you really are. And therefore, you hide from the light. Therefore, you don't read the Bible. Therefore, you don't stay accountable. Therefore, you run away from church. Because you're afraid that people will see you for who you really are. Well, know that God is not just shined light, but he's commanded light to shine in the darkness. That God, no matter where you are, he can redeem you. He can bring you back. He can, though your sins were as scarlet, he can make you as white as snow. That your sins can be forgiven. It doesn't matter what you've done. That if you come to the light, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You have that guarantee, but that requires this, humility. Willingness to say, I can't do it on my own, and I need your forgiveness. Doesn't mean come when you're perfect. Doesn't mean come when you're better. It means come as you are. Ready to say, Lord, I surrender all, even if it means people think I'm a phony and a fake. Because I know that apart from you, I can do nothing. Now, if you stay in lost, you stay lost, you stay in sin, it leads to hell. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. When we serve the lesser masters, realize that the longer you stay in darkness, the more you learn to like the darkness. And if you like the darkness, guess who you're going to fight against? You're going to fight against the light because you don't want the light to shine. You'll start to wage war with everyone else too. Your treasure has to be better than everybody else's treasure. The thing that you're pursuing has to be better than everything, everyone else's thing because it's what you've sold your life to do. And everyone has to worship what you worship. You see, when you stay in the darkness, when you have sin that you won't let go of, you begin to wage war against other people and against God himself. And when you wage war against God, God has to allow us to be in our sin, to not willingly come to him. And that requires justice and punishment because realize that when you wage war, it's against other people, the people of God and the person of God. And justice demands the punishment. 
And if you won't accept Jesus' sacrifice by coming to the light, then you are left alone to endure punishment for your own sins. But if you come into the light, he is faithful. In Psalm chapter 32, after David sins with Bathsheba, you know, he should have known better. The king of Israel, but he sinned with Bathsheba, slept with her, killed her husband. Once he confessed his sins, he was found out. He said this in Psalm 32, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night your hand of discipline was heavy upon me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confess all my sins to you, and I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And you punished me? No. And you yelled at me? No. And you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. Remember this. David, in writing the psalm, was writing a song. It actually has interludes mixed in to this psalm. I can imagine David, after he had been forgiven, had been tempted to feel condemned for what he had done, and would sing this song to remind himself the joy of the person who's been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, has no need to hold on to the things of the darkness because that's not even you anymore. You died, and your life is now hidden in Christ and God. Tim Keller, a pastor, says this, Jesus is the only Lord who, if you receive him, will fulfill you completely, and if you fail him, will forgive you eternally. Isn't that wonderful? To know that if you receive Jesus, you can receive true fulfillment. And even if you fail in your service to him, he will still forgive you. Here are two takeaways, and then we'll close it up. Number one, what can we learn from this? Act like a priest, not like a pagan. Act like a priest, not like a pagan. Earlier, uh, earlier this week, I did my first funeral. And as I did, you know, I'm this young guy. It was an older person who died. Not old by any means, but an older person who died. I had a great privilege and honor of doing it. But as a young guy who looks like he's 18, I know that people probably would think, oh gosh, we got the only person they had, right? So as I go there, I had a choice. I could be all scared, I could be all nervous, and be like, oh, I'm going to do a terrible job. Or I could actually go and do it, knowing that God called me to do it, and embrace it, and rock it to the glory of God. I had two choices. Now, as I served, I did with all my heart. I think the Lord really used it, and was able to speak to people. It was a unique situation, you know, being able to to talk to people that aren't believers in this moment of crisis and be able to share with them the good news of Jesus. It's a really strange feeling, but it's a wonderful feeling. Now imagine if I did go, I was like, oh, I don't even want to be a pastor. Oh, man, I, here I am. And like, guys, I'm not really meant to be a pastor, but I'm called to be a pastor. So here I am. I'm going to do a ceremony, and I leave. What good would that do? How miserable would that be? Who would I bless by doing that? 
Now, knowing that, as a pastor, you are called to be a priest. Act like a priest. A pagan is a person who's just not a Christian, not a believer. And when you hang out with non-believers, act like a priest. Act like a pastor. Act like a person who is a representative of Jesus Christ interceding on the behalf of sinful people to a holy and righteous God. Share with them the love of Christ. Tell them that they don't have to offer sacrifices of their own flesh and blood, but they get to offer the sacrifices of praise because of the goodness of God, because of what Jesus Christ has done, himself becoming that sacrifice for our sins. Second thing is walk in the light, not in darkness. Walk in the light, not in darkness. If you are in light, act like you're in the light. If there are things in your heart that you are hiding from other people, bring it out into the open. The Bible says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. And some of you have to do that. So prayerfully consider that. Last thing. Promise is the last thing. Everyone look up here. I'm going to ask you a question. Who's calling you? Who's calling you? Me? Leaders? Parents? This calling that you have, the fact that you're a chosen generation, is it me? Am I supposed, is my job to figure out what you're called to do? Or is this calling from God? If this calling is from God, what are you waiting for? You don't need me. You don't need me to d discover your talents. If you feel like you have a gift, something to offer, don't wait for me to find out what it is. You find out what it is. You hear from God what the vision for your life is supposed to be, and you just start doing it. You just start acting like a priest. You start walking in the light. You start doing what you're meant to do. And I think people have it backwards. They're, they're waiting for someone to discover them and tell them what they're supposed to be. But God is the one who does that. I mean, I'm going to try my best to look at people and say, I think this might be your gift, but I might get it wrong. But the person who won't get it wrong is God because he's the one who called you and created you and crafted you in the first place. So let's walk in that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this study. Thank you, Lord, that we are chosen. And I pray, Lord, that you give us a burden for lost people around us. So many people, Lord, that don't know you, Jesus, that are walking lost. They're walking in sin that are on the way to hell. And Jesus, you called us out of that same darkness. We were one of those people, but now we are in the light. And I pray, Lord, that each and every person would see their role. They're not just a bystander. They are a priest. They are a representative of you to this lost world. And I pray, Jesus, we would embrace that calling, that we wouldn't act one way in one place and act a different way in a different place. It doesn't matter who we've been up until this point, but Jesus Christ, we pray that you would revive our hearts today, that we would leave this place and we would start having Christian conversations, conversations that are edifying. We don't waste our time with things that are meaningless, but we'd actually do things that last for eternity. I pray that you show people their calling, what you're asking them to do individually and what you're asking them to do corporately so that they can proclaim the praises of you who have called them out of darkness into your marvelous light. We were once not a people, but now we are the people of God. Once we didn't obtain mercy, but now we have your mercy. We thank you, Jesus, for that. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it, but you've given it.
We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.